Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, is the U.S. pouring gasoline on the Ukraine fire and risking Armageddon? We'll feature an extended interview and conversation with distinguished international law scholar and emeritus professor at Princeton, Richard Falk, former U.N. Rapporteur for the Occupied Territories. Also, we'll talk to the filmmakers of a new documentary, He Had His Wings, about the street artist Ronnie Goodman and his work with Hospitality House and the poor and unhoused in San Francisco's troubled Tenderloin District. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We're coming to you today from San Francisco over KPFA Pacifica. And we are happy to have you along. And we are really delighted to welcome back to these Airwaves, Professor Richard Falk. Richard Falk is Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University, Chair of Global Law, Queen Mary University in London, and he recently wrote the piece Ukraine War Evolves, Slouching Toward Armageddon. And uh, we are happy to welcome you back to these airwaves, Professor. Uh, good to have you with us again. Good to be with you. Well, uh, these are very dangerous times. Uh, your piece is pretty interesting. We do have, in this progressive community, we have a lot of folks who are very touchy, uh, even to suggest uh, that maybe it's not all Putin, that the problem, that's uh, the big problem there uh, in this expanding war. So let me ask you three questions and let you jump into it based on the piece you just wrote. How did this war start? Is it a war of aggression? Should Putin be tried as a war criminal? Well, those are very fundamental questions and that none, neither, none of them are uh, capable of being answered uh, with a simple one-line uh, response. Uh, we don't do one-lines here. Yeah. <laughs> we, the the first question was: uh, uh, Did did Russia uh, uh, How start did the war? The start? war? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the war started uh, when the when the Russians attacked. Ukraine on February 22nd of this year, but its real beginning uh, starts in 2014, at least, I mean, you have to go back at least to that year when uh, the U.S. and NATO began uh, a series of provocative acts, starting with participating in a uh, the Maidan coup that overthrew a pro-Russian leader, supporting the successors that uh, inflicted uh, atrocities on the Russian-speaking minority in the eastern part of the country, and then uh, increasing the 
temptation to Ukraine to become part of NATO. And all of those things were seen as uh, an effort to extend the control exercised geopolitically by the United States to the very borders of Russia. And that really violated the kind of geopolitical arrangements that had avoided World War III during the Cold War. So that's that's the answer to my to the first question and the second question was about Putin or the, is it a was... war of aggression they say it's an it's a war of aggression started by Putin he should be prosecuted for this kind of illegal war is it is well, it that, is that, that sound about right uh yeah i i think it's if you look just at the uh, at the relevant article of the UN Charter, it, it is a, a war of aggression. It was non non defensive uh, use of international force in a situation that hadn't been preceded by an armed attack from Ukraine. So, at the, looked at that way, it definitely is a war of aggression. But you have to remember that the UN Charter also includes this right of exception in the form of a veto. So nothing uh, that is charged to the five permanent members of the Security Council is unambiguously a, a chargeable war crime. And that goes back to World War II at Nuremberg and Tokyo uh, there was no attempt to uh, impose accountability on the victors. So there's always been this kind of double standard applied to the use of international law in contexts of this sort, where it's used as a geopolitical tool rather than as a law that applies equally to equal uh, actors, to, in other words, the essence of law is to treat equals equally. So, the U.S. has frequently engaged in aggressive war, and nothing has happened. And so, to suddenly invoke this norm, uh, at best, uh, suggests a political motivation, and not a concern with principles of order that should be respected by every political actor. Let me ask you to put this into context of uh, you, you were formerly uh, working with the United Nations. You were the UN Rapporteur for the Occupied Territories. Now, we just saw another election where there seems to be a, a Netanyahu has got an extreme right-wing group, and they all may be very well be criminals. Uh, would, under the, say, the context of the way in which people would like uh, Putin prosecuted, who, who in Israel would uh, sort of qualify for prosecution? And would the well, U.S. Uh, be qualified qualify for prosecution as a supporter of apartheid and that kind of um, uh, ethnic cleansing? 
Yeah, it's a completely uh, reasonable question. But it it really reinforces what I was trying to say uh, to your prior questions. There is a pervasive double standard, which means that the powerful countries in the world, the ones that used to be called great powers and uh, now have this immunity within the uh, uh, UN framework, uh, they use international law to uh, deal with their adversaries. In other words, they they brand their adversaries as violating international law, which makes them into uh, outlaws of international society. But they don't hold themselves to the same standards of either behavior or accountability. And Israel is a perfect example of that, where uh, very... Uh, mainstream uh, human rights organizations, several of them, have found that Israel has is practicing apartheid in a uh, pervasive form, not only in the occupied Palestinian territories, but within its uh, own uh, territorial boundaries. And yet there's complete silence with respect to accountability for for that kind of criminal conduct. And uh, the recent elections, as you point out, have brought into prominence uh, individuals that now will serve in the cabinet uh, who are, uh, by any uh, reasonable standard, uh, violating the most basic norms of international law, international humanitarian law, and international morality, and have openly identified themselves, for instance, with this um, Kahana uh, pro-fascist extreme uh, group that was listed for a long time as as a terrorist group by the U.S., and uh, they also have um, uh, identified with uh, the the street chants of kill the the Arabs, and they supported ideas of uh, deporting uh, people from uh, those parts of the occupied Uh, West Bank that they would like to uh, annex and become part of greater Israel. So you have a picture of pervasive, prolonged crime that has imposed great suffering on the Palestinian people over a period of uh, 75 years after it was supposed to be uh, a kind of p- peaceful resolution of the conflict under the auspices of the UN, and nothing has been done to uphold 
the minimum expectations of international law or even the, the expectations that the Security Council endorsed in 1967 that Israel would withdraw from the occupied territories. So it's a very, uh, uh, it's a very um, uh, intense form of double standards that becomes very vivid because the U.S. is uh, involved all over the world and has these 800 uh, overseas foreign bases. First time any country has uh, established this kind of non-territorial global state. It's not quite an empire, but it's a global state. And I call it a Monroe Doctrine for the world that the U.S. is the only country that uh, that claims this uh, uh, right to intervene forcibly beyond its territorial borders for reasons other than self-defense. And uh, the situation in Ukraine is arguably a case of collective self-defense, but not uh, in, a, in a manner that is responsibly seeking a peaceful settlement of an international dispute, which is another norm that's given prominence in the UN Charter. So it's, it's a, uh, the overall picture is one where one has to acknowledge the primacy of geopolitics in the way the world is organized and operates at this time. And it had been during the Cold War, a bipolar world. And since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's been in a unipolar world, which China and Russia are in different ways challenging. In one moment, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the way in which the U.S. appears to be using the war uh, to deal with Russia and more particularly China. But I just to sort of extend the, the parallel in terms of responsibility, uh, the, we've heard a lot about the Russians hitting civilians and hitting civilian neighborhoods. Um, very little reporting was done, though, about uh, when the Israelis do what they call mowing the lawn, they're sort of teaching the Palestinians a, a lesson every... Uh, so every couple of years, in one of the last rounds in the attack on Gaza, where people are essentially, it's it's uh, over a million people locked down in an open-air prison, the Israelis kept hitting, with using U.S. weaponry and support, they hit a number of uh, apartment buildings. Didn't they also hit, hit the multi-story international media center in Gaza? These are, would yes. these be war crimes? Uh, I spoke, in fact, uh, Professor, I spoke to a a woman who was uh, in her basement during the bombing, and she was saying to me she was terrified that her child was going to break her teeth. She was, her, you know, her teeth was shaking so much. No, it's it's horrible. And the uh, this siege and blockade of Gaza that's gone on since 2007 is a continuing war crime in the form of collective punishment of an entire 
people that are supposed to be especially protected because they're occupied and therefore they're subject to the Geneva Conventions, the essence of which is the obligation of the occupier to protect civilians under their custody. So you're right to bring up the contrast between the U.S. behavior toward crimes committed by Israel in relation to the Palestinian people and the occupied territories and their uh, outrage at some of the abuses of uh, law of war that are being attributed to Russia. Probably uh, some of them are accurate, some of them are state propaganda. It's hard to know what to believe uh, in, in this world where everything is manipulated in terms of its reality. And, but I assume that a lot of civilian damage has been uh, either deliberately done or collaterally to the pursuit of military objectives. It's very difficult to be very definite about that. But the uh, your earlier question about Putin uh, yes. is relevant because the whole demonization of Putin at the outset was a way of preventing diplomacy to have a chance to uh, resolve the conflict at an early stage. And it it. Uh, Biden and the Secretary of State in Defense made it clear that the objective uh, was to inflict enough damage on the uh, on Russia that it would suffer a defeat, and that was the message it wanted China to receive and uh, to deliver t- to Moscow a kind of knockout blow from the illusion that they could recover the kind of international stature that they had during the Soviet era. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are speaking with Professor Richard Falk. He is the Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University. He's chair of Global Law, Queen Mary University, London, uh, and uh, does a lot of other work, has written a lot of former uh, UN repertoire in the occupied territories. And we're talking about... uh, what's happening in terms of the expanding war in Ukraine. And this is a very, very dangerous war. Um, you, By the way, you do point out uh, in your article that uh, the United States was not sort of rushing to celebrate international law uh, when it uh, resisted being a part of the actions of the international criminal court known as the ICC Uh, if somebody who wants to support international law and the enforcement of uh, war crimes, wouldn't they want to have jumped in and supported the international criminal court? Uh, You would think so but remember that the uh, premise of uh, world order 
that emerged out of World War II was that the uh, principal victors uh, should not be expected to adhere to international law. That's why they were given this right of exception in the Security Council, the only body that can make decisions within the UN system, and they have uh, acted without any kind of feeling that they are accountable under international law. And when the ICC attempted to uh, investigate allegations of U.S. criminality in Afghanistan and Israeli uh, uh, criminality in relation to the occupied territories, uh, Israel called it anti-Semitism, and the Trump presidency actually imposed sanctions on the prosecutor at the ICC for daring uh, to uh, investigate uh, the U.S. and Israel. It was uh, so the, the turn now, because it's opportunistic uh, to invoke the ICC and international criminal law uh, to uh, punish uh, Russia, which also is not a party to the ICC, neither. None of the big countries join because of this sense that they're not willing to be accountable. And that goes back to the experience of the League of Nations before the UN, when these uh, bigger countries either didn't join, as was the case with the U.S., or withdrew, as was the case in, with the Soviet Union, or were expelled, as was the case with Germany. So the idea that Roosevelt was really responsible more than anyone else was that it's better to keep geopolitics within the framework of the UN and recognize this primacy of geopolitics, which is a way of saying international law matters for the weak, but it's not relevant to the strong unless they want it to be. Right. Right. Um, a, a Mexican delegate after the UN uh, charter was approved was asked, what kind of organization is this going to be? And he said, we've created an organization where the, the mice are accountable but the tigers run free. Yes. Amazing. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, speaking with uh, international law expert Professor Richard Falk, uh, a professor emeritus uh, at Princeton University, and uh, we're talking about all things having to do with Ukraine, international law. Um, now, it... Certainly, the United States in the last, uh, since the war started in February, has sold, uh, what, I guess about a billion dollars worth of weapons. Um, they, it's been very profitable, a very profitable war. They've been able to test some of the latest technology. It seems like there's more coming in 
on the pike. The U.S. says it's necessary to restrain uh, Russia and ultimately China because they're the aggressors. And if we don't stop them there, who knows uh, where they will be next, uh, Professor. Um, this is very dangerous. We we saw a how far it appears that the Biden administration was willing to go when you had an official. We don't know his name yet, but we had an official who uh, uh, informed Associated Press that the Russians had opened fire on a NATO c- country uh, and thus, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. What were you thinking as all that was unfolding? Well, that, I think it was all part of this pattern of taking those risks because the strategic, the strategic stakes were seen as so high. Because once uh, Ukraine was supplied with enough weaponry that they could neutralize the uh, Russian attack, uh, the objective shifted from uh, defending uh, Ukraine to winning the geopolitical war with Russia. And winning that uh, war with Russia involved uh, what amounts to a geopolitical poker game where the threats are very high and the stakes are very high, uh, but if the other side meets the challenge with force, the consequences are mutually catastrophic. And and we haven't had that kind of situation uh, since uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is more serious in one way partly because of the nature of the leadership in the two antagonistic uh, countries, and partly because it's uh, uh, enmeshed in a a complex situation where the uh, actors could uh, try to uh, uh, bluff each other in ways that lead them to stumble into a war that neither one actually wants. And the I think the U.S. thinks that it could achieve victory indirectly without actually engaging or suffering the consequences. But the consequences are be, will be felt uh, increasingly in other parts of the world, the vul- people vul- vulnerable to energy uh, prices and supplies, food instabilities, which partly explain why the global south is not willing to go along with the U.S. and is also not willing to go along because it would rather live in a multipolar world than a unipolar world. And even Europe is raising questions as to whether its being its interests are being sacrificed for this geopolitical vision of uh, American uh, geopolitical primacy. 
I'm, I'm wondering, just as a side on this recent leak by the Biden administration, do you think it's important for us to know who the leaker is? Uh, do you, I mean, do you, on the one hand, you've got Julian Assange, who made information available that helped to stop wars, and uh, actually major news institutions used it to win major awards and do breaking stories. Um, he's in jail, facing forever jail, and you got this guy who's anonymous in the Biden administration trying to provoke another war, of course, and that wouldn't be the first time, if that led us to a little bigger part in the war, wouldn't be the first time that the United States did false flag, right? We can name, I can right. name five right now, but I won't. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, there, there's uh, there's no question that the deep state has its own agenda, and it's a agenda that's in, locked into a black box. So the citizenry have no idea uh, what that agenda consists of and how how big they uh, envision the stakes. In, in this conflict and how much influence they have on political leadership, all those are kind of unknowable aspects of a country that claims to be a functioning democracy on the most important issues uh, facing the society. It com operates completely on the basis of secrecy and the treatment of Assange is a classic example of that because he should be uh, welcomed as a check on the abuse of state power and uh, viewed as a kind of guardian of uh, governmental accountability because what he exposed largely was uh, the war crimes being committed uh, by the U.S. in Afghanistan and exposed it by uh, releasing this documentary uh, evidence. And uh, you, you may remember that Roosevelt, during World War II, encouraged Germans to collect evidence of German war crimes in order to uh, enable prosecution at the end of the war. So it's, it's a practice that, again, is um, celebrated if it's done in uh, pursuance of national... But if it penetrates secrecy of the what used to be called the national security state, it's viewed uh, criminal conduct of the worst kind. And there have been right-wing people that have called for uh, using capital punishment even in relation to Assange. He's suffered a deal and been treated very miserably. And it is a sign that he's a kind of martyr modernity as it functions in this war-peace context. We're 
been speaking with Richard Falk, and we have been for about the last half hour. Richard Falk is an incredibly important source of information. He's the Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University, Chair of Global Law, Queen Mary University, London, former uh, human rights repertoire for the United Nations uh, in the occupied territories. We've been talking about Ukraine and a whole a bunch of other things. And I, just before I let you go, we just have a minute or two left, Professor, but I really would like, like to tap your knowledge and your experience to talk about, just give your take on where we are now here in the United States. Everybody saw how close Trump got to sustaining an insurrection. And in this country, he's being allowed to run again for president. But how close do you, were we a step away from fascism? How how do you think about that? Well, I think it showed the vulnerability of the society uh, to a fascist takeover. And I think we can learn a lot by looking at what happened to Weimar Germany in the uh, pre-Nazi period, where a weakly functioning democracy was not a very good uh, defense against this kind of uh, fascist uh, extremism that has no respect for law, constitutional procedures. I think that should have been the lesson that one would have hoped a greater proportion of the citizenry would have uh, grasped uh, that this is a very dangerous uh, development in the country. And if the economic crisis, for instance, was to deepen as it had in Germany pre-Hitler, it, it would be a situation where one would have great fear that uh, a fascist kind of political development would uh, take over the control of the society. The very dangerous for the for America and very dangerous for the world. Uh, Hitler was a phenomenon in pre-nuclear reality. Now we are in an in deep into the nuclear age with all kinds of cyber weaponry and it it really pose it would pose in my view and i don't mean this to be alarmist it would pose a crisis of species extinction where the very future of the species is at risk particularly in conjunction with these other issues is climate change and the general decline of uh, humane governance throughout the world. Well, well, uh, Professor Falk, I really appreciate you taking the time out. Let me tell a piece that your uh, people that your most recent piece is Ukraine War Evolves Slouching Toward Armageddon. I believe that's up on Counterpunch now. Uh, 
uh, one of our favorite sources of information. We thank you again, Professor, for taking the time out from and for sharing your extraordinary knowledge of international law and putting uh, the war into some kind of context for us. We hope that uh, you remain safe and that you will come back and visit us again. Well, thank you, Dennis. I enjoyed our conversation, even though it covered a lot of dark territory. <laughs> yeah, we try and get a lot in there. Thanks for sticking with us, sir. Appreciate it. Good. Take care. Uh, take care. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to sort of come back local here to the San Francisco Bay Area where we broadcast from, and we're going to hear about a new film called He Had Wings, uh, and it includes a, a whole bunch of a story about an artist named Ronnie Goodman. Stay with us.
That's Mr. Scruff. Get a move on on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And we turn attention here locally to the San Francisco Bay Area. We want to focus on uh, a new film. He had wings. It uh, sort of is, in a way, a portrait of Ronnie Goodman, uh, artist, and his work, uh, among other things, working with Hospitality House, uh, with the poor and the unhoused in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the Tenderloin here in San Francisco. Um, and uh, we are delighted. Uh, the film is going to be shown, uh, I guess it's uh, showing on the 4th, December 4th, and we wanted to give you a, a taste uh, and get into it with the filmmakers, the people who helped to bring it about. Joining us is uh, Jeannie Marie Hallisey. Uh, she is a filmmaker, human rights activist, uh, and she worked along with Greg uh, Butensky, uh, who is also a human rights documentarian, and they work with Karana Productions. Uh, and again, the film is going to be shown on December 4th for those of you uh, in the Bay Area. So uh, welcome, uh, Ginny and Greg. Welcome back to Flashpoints. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks, Dennis. Great well, to be here. It's good to have you with us. Let me just read a little bit uh, that uh, appears in the local press about the film and about Ronnie Goodman. It says, Ronnie Goodman was a true San Francisco original homeless, formerly incarcerated, a marathon runner, and an astonishing creator of paintings and murals. His art hangs in City Hall and has been exhibited in the museums of modern art in San Francisco and New York, and the New, and the New York display was bringing him national acclaim when he suddenly died of a drug overdose at 60 in a ragged tent in Mission District in 2020. Well, um, again, welcome to both of you. Um, Jeannie, talk a little bit, Jeannie Marie Hallisey, talk a little bit about why you were attracted to this story and more about uh, the person that you're focusing on here. I first met Ronnie um, because of happening upon a vigil that was taking place by some youth in the Mission District for their friend who had been killed on the street. And I saw them gathering with candles and flowers and um, various forms of offering for Ronnie's son, Ronnie Goodman Jr., who had been tragically stabbed to death um, in the Mission District some eight years ago. And I asked them if I could photograph the vigil and gain their trust. And they, they then invited me to the actual memorial ceremony that was um, overseen by an Aztec Native American ceremony at Ocean Beach. And it was there that I met Ronnie Sr., the father of the young, of the young man who had been killed and became his friend. Um, he had um, Ronnie, Ronnie Senior was an artist, and his his younger his son Ronnie Junior was also an up and coming name in the art scene in the Mission District as a graffiti artist. That's how I first met Ronnie, and I shared with him the photos that I had taken of the ceremony, and we became friends. And I visited him at the time he was able to use a small space in the Lower Haight for his painting studio, and I was completely. Uh, blown away when I saw the paintings that he was making while himself being homeless. He was somebody who had been formerly incarcerated in San Quentin prison 
for nonviolent crime. Um, and in prison, he joined the uh, prison arts program where he continued to hone his skills as a, as a visionary artist and began to be introduced to printmaking by mentored by the, the well-known Bay Area artist Art Hazelwood, who is a, a, quite a respected uh, printmaker in the Bay Area and formerly headed that department at the San Francisco Art Institute. And I was just taken in by the spirit of what he was painting, not only the beauty that he saw on the streets, but the dignity that he imbued. He painted those that are normally discarded in society. He painted people's pain. He painted the issues that are confronting people like himself uh, every day um, on, on the lower echelons of, of, of this city, which is one of the wealthiest in, in the country. And yet he brought such a vibrancy and such an incredible storytelling arc to every print or painting that he made. And that's what led me to, uh, to deepen my friendship with him. And and Greg, let me bring you into this as a filmmaker and a producer. What attracted you to this? Um, and if you will, how did his work change you? Thanks, Dennis. Um, well, I got introduced to the topic through Jeannie. I worked very closely with Jeannie. Um, we founded Corona Productions together several years ago. Our work is focused mainly on human rights and social justice issues uh, halfway around the world, uh, mostly in Burma, in and around Burma. Um, listeners to the show will be familiar with Jeannie, Jeannie's work on that topic. She's been on discussing the situation in Burma quite a bit. Um, but because of the pandemic, uh, 2020, we found ourselves both uh, in lockdown in San Francisco. I live in San Francisco. Jeannie splits her time uh, between San Francisco and Bangkok. And, um, you know, as restless filmmakers, um, we kind of started, you know, we had our eyes open to, uh, the local community to see what we might be able to do. And, um, because Jeannie had met Ronnie, uh, you know, prior to his passing and was quite close with him, actually, um, that, that opportunity just came up and, um, I was, I was very, um, I was thrilled to be able to, you know, get out a little bit um, from lockdown and, and help Jeannie with this work right in our own backyard. In terms of Jeannie, how... Uh, this, go on, go on, please. Go on. No, I just want to address, you asked kind of a challenging question, how did yes. his work uh, on this project impact me? Um, you know, a lot of the work that we do, as I mentioned, is halfway around the world, and uh, this is right in in my own backyard. So it really had a very immediate, uh, you know, impact. Uh, you know, you know, on how I how I exist, how I feel about my own city, and um, you know, Ron, Ronnie was. I never got to meet him uh, before he passed, but I feel like I've gotten to know him through this work, and he was uh, an exceptional human being. Yes, and and Jeannie, the title of the film is "He Had Wings." Did he? And I don't say this facetiously. Did he have wings? Was his art his wings? Very much so. I think that um, he had wings on multiple levels, I, and that was a um, actually a quote from somebody who I met who himself was unhoused um, on the street with Ronnie, who Ronnie took him under um, his protection because he had was new to the streets. And when Ronnie passed and I was filming the memorial 
service where there was, you know, over 100 people gathered to pay their respects to him at the corner of 16th and Cap, which was his his kingdom. It wasn't just a corner, it was a kingdom that he created where he painted, he held court, he shared food with people. Uh, he was the kind of person that would really give you the coat off of his back. And um, this, yes. this person who we interviewed, who, who did not make it into the final cut of the film, said it was like he had wings. He could fly up above all of us. And I think it was an allegorical um, uh, meaning for us to also see that um, in many of his paintings, he inserted himself. There are some uh, internal self-portraits in the paintings that he did. He grew up in San Francisco. He grew up in the projects, Western Edition, um, the Haight and Fillmore. He grew up in the days when there was still an African-American community of music there. He was someone who was a disciple of what he called. He was a member of the uh, disciple of jazz and a member of the Church of John Coltrane, which still exists. Yes. And um, in these self-portraits that we see portraying the life on the streets and the life of, as I said, people of color, people who are, who have been incarcerated, people who are you know, those that don't have much in life. He often put himself in the painting and he actually painted angelic wings on himself, but with his head bowed or in some kind of a position that inferred that he was trying to struggle against something larger, you know, something that was holding down the flight of somebody like himself. And I think very much his art transcended that and that was why he um, elevated people who knew him both as an artist and as somebody who made life an art on the street you're making me cry Jeannie because I'm thinking you know this society oftentimes like its children hates its artists or acts like it does anyway and the life becomes a very difficult struggle and uh, that's where uh, the drugs can become a problem because those who are so sensitive uh, and have that depth uh, sometimes simply can't take it. And with the availability of drugs and with the, the disrespect of society in terms of artists, it's a real problem, isn't it? I I followed your poems, uh, Dennis, so I know that you also are somebody with that type of a soul, and I think that is very accurate. Um, there is a lot of pain in the world, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of harshness in the world, particularly for people who are of lower income levels, and particularly, obviously, for people of color in our society in the United States. And when you internalize that, and it starts to corrode your very view of what is possible it is difficult to overcome that. And I think that one thing that Ronnie was able to do was present possibility. He presented it both to himself through his art, despite being homeless on the street, he painted or drew or sketched every day, which is quite remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable to do that if you're housed and you have a job. To do that, reach the level that he did without even having that, I think is... Is something that we, sh- we should all take note of. And part of what we wanted to tell in this story was that, you know, the, the issue of homelessness, which is a very complex issue in the, in the Bay Area, it's affecting all of the Bay Area as it is in other places in the United States. But in San Francisco in particular, I'm sure you're aware, Dennis, as, your, as are your listeners, that San Francisco has been bashed, as, as it were, as a kind of a, uh, a, a whipping post pinata for many of the right-wing media 
who are pointing to the failure of the city by having this blight, quote unquote, upon our city. And some of the newcomers who made their home in the city who weren't from here, who worked in very high paying tech jobs, also made a very vocal protest about this. And what we wanted to say was among these numbers that you hear of of the number of homeless people who are are also referred to as unhoused community by people who work here in in the streets, these are individuals who all have a family, who are all loved by someone, who are missed by someone, who have a story that you are not aware of, who have perhaps overcome tremendous odds in their lives and yet survived. And they're not just someone you're rushing past because you're afraid of or you're stepping over because you're disgusted by them. And so this this film and the, the event that we're having on Sunday is to give pause by shining a light on two of these individuals who are not someone's people who to be walked over, but they are people to be engaged with. They are not those that are dispossessed. They are those that the city should possess to find solutions to these complex problems. So the film is about Ronnie Goodman, the artist, and I'll turn to Greg um, because the other character in the film was about his very close friend, Coach, who also was with Ronnie in San Quentin. Both men were men of color. Both men were men that lost family members. Yeah, just to say about uh, Coach, because I did have the good fortune to meet Coach in the making of this film, and that's... um, uh, someone who really um, opened up my eyes um, to the true face of homelessness in this in the city. A, 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 another man with a lot of dignity, and um, just was dealt a bad hand a lot, you know, over the course of his life. Um, he was about he was about Ronnie's age, uh, you know, sixties, and um, was incarcerated with with Ronnie at San Quentin. Is homeless, but was really um, a, a, a major. Um, force for good in the world and, and really looked out for other people on the street and tried to, you know, sort of keep them in line and be good neighbors. And um, it's, it was fabulous to meet him, and he's also featured in our film. Janine, say a little bit more uh, about what you would hope a film like this, impact a film like this would have. Why do you make a film like this? Why do you... Uh, make this kind of art, I'll call it art, available. Uh, what does it mean to you? What's at the heart of the matter? We, we tell stories as a way to reach people in an aspiration to reclaim our humanity. There is no, uh, there's no shortage of inhumanity currently in our world and, and tragedies, um, both internationally as well as, as, as domestically right here in our own community. And we're really, really excited and proud of the fact that we finally were able to turn our lens, as Greg said, towards our city and our own, our, our very own community. I mean, I, I, you know, my home was in the mission. And I think it's about stripping away the constructs of what people perceive of when we group people together under a label, such as the homeless. What does that mean when you actually deconstruct that? You know, the, uh, the estimated 8,000 people who are living on the streets of San Francisco, and that's exclusive of people in the East Bay and, and the greater Bay Area in Northern California. In, among those thousands of people, as I said, are people who have shown tremendous integrity, tremendous courage in overcoming things that are unimaginable to most people who are housed, clothed, fed, and safe and moreover have 
income. So to find those types of people who have nothing and yet are willing to give everything in service to the community, in service to others who are in pain, to me is something that is inspirational. And we hope that will resonate with people who see the film and the stories of these two men. And the details, if they want to see it? We're going to, this is the premiere, and I've just flown back, actually, from Asia um, for this, Dennis. Um, It's going to be at the San Francisco Public Library, the main branch, right near Civic Center, if you're coming from BART. This was very much a home to Ronnie uh, off the streets, and it's in the Corret Auditorium in the ground floor on Sunday, December 4th at 1 p.m. And following the film, we're going to have an excellent panel discussion with directors of four of the largest organizations working with the homeless and with low-income communities to find solutions. We've got the director of Hospitality House, Joe Wilson, a place where Ronnie made art. We've got the director of the Coalition on Homelessness, the director of the Downtown Street Team, and the UCSF Benioff Homeless Program. They will all be discussing the myriad complex issues related to homelessness, affordable housing, the fentanyl crisis, mental health services, policies, and what is needed to have a humane response to this crisis. Please join us and there will be some free food afterwards. San Francisco Public Library, Main Branch, Sunday, 1 1 p.m. And the and is there a website for more information for the film or the the library the, the San Francisco Public Library website it's it's on there. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you both for making this beautiful film uh, that we have the privilege of sharing with the Bay Area and the rest of the country. Both of you, please stay safe and thanks for joining us on Flashpoints. Thanks so much, Dennis. Many thanks, Dennis. You're welcome. And that's it for us.